first and foremost, I'd like to thank uh, the Harmsworth family, uh, particularly Mr. Vivian Harmsworth and his wife Alexandra, for um, supporting this lectureship. It's, this, it's one of the most extraordinary things in the world in terms of supporting um, American history uh, anywhere. And certainly, it's, it's more extraordinary than anything that I've ever experienced or dealt with in the States. So um, I, I really appreciate the continuing support the Harmsworth family has given this lecture since 1922. Um, I also want to thank, uh, of course, Provost uh, Madden, uh, the faculty associated with the outstanding Rothamir American Institute, um, especially Richard Carradine, Stephen Tuck, Desmond King, and his venerable director, Nigel Bowles, all of whom um, warmly welcome me uh, to Oxford. I've been here for about a week, and um, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I live in sunny California, and it's better than home. Um, and of course, to the staff at Queens College, in the history, in the history faculty as well, uh, notably Jackie Julia, um, Richard Sykes, and Anne Bevan for shepherding me through numerous bureaucratic hurdles and for doing battle with the British consulate on my behalf. You know, uh, and finally, um, my best friend, my extraordinary partner, my wife who's not here, uh, Lisa Gay Hamilton, the great actor who um, can't be here because she's still in L.A but um, she will hear this podcast and, and be duly acknowledged for all the work she has done in helping me get this together. Okay, so let me begin. As Samuel Elliott Morrison had done when he delivered the first Harmsworth Lecture 87 years ago, I too must begin with a prologue. Through the prologue, Professor Mark Morrison told his audience, the author endeavored to establish a personal relation between himself and his audience and to arouse the curiosity and interest in the play that followed. I pray he is correct. Anyone familiar with the history of this august chair will immediately notice that I differ from every previous Harmsworth professor in one crucial way. I'm not white, okay? Now some of you probably guess it was my earrings, but um, <laughs> I think the five women who preceded me probably beat me to that distinction. Um, while this is indeed an historic occasion, there is more to the story than my being what we call in the States a Negro first. Some of it quite personal, some of it political, some of it symbolic, and much of it speaks to the place of African Americans and race in US political discourse and collective memory. The story I will share with you by way of prologue brought me to tonight's topic. On March 25th of this year, uh, the distinguished historian John Hope Franklin joined the ancestors. Let's see. He was 94 years old. For those of you who are not familiar with uh, Professor Franklin, he authored many seminal texts, noble, notably From Slavery to Freedom, A History of the Negro Americans, published, first in, uh, published in 1947, as well as Reconstruction After the Civil War, The Militant South, George Washington Williams, A Biography, and a collection of essays titled Race and History, to name but a few. He has influenced virtually everyone laboring in the field of African American history, though he identified himself as an Americanist specializing in Southern history. He certainly was, but sadly his contribution as an American historian had been overlooked and undervalued. He was critical of consensus history and notions of American exceptionalism, 
and he consistently placed developments in the United States in a global transnational framework. His reluctance to treat U.S. democracy as an immaculate success story derived not only from his keen scholarship, but from his experience. Besides enduring racism in virtually every archive and educational institution, Franklin's bouts with discrimination in the military during World War II shook his faith in American democracy. The last time I saw Dr. Franklin was in August of 2008 while I was moving my daughter into her dorm room at Duke University. That same weekend, he participated in a public conversation with Indian historian Romila Thapar titled The Historian in the World. I was blown away by the man's mind, by his intellectual reach, his grace and eloquence, and by his searing critique of Western historiography. His talk uh, left a deep impression on me for another reason. I thought about how his travels and visiting appointments abroad shaped his perspective as an historian. I returned to his memoir, Mirror to America, and read with interest about his tenure as the Pitt Professor of American History at Cambridge during the academic year 1962-63. It was a position in which he took particular pride. Then it hit me. In 1962, Dr. Franklin was 47 years old and the first African American to hold the Pitt chair. I was born in 1962, and by some uncanny coincidence, I now hold the Harmsworth Professorship in my 47th year, the year Dr. Franklin passed. Upon this discovery, it occurred to me that this huge crater in which I now stand is Dr. Franklin's footstep. Now the obvious question, why wasn't Dr. Franklin a harmless professor? According to Robert Winks, the University of Oxford planned to invite him in 1957, but the American Historical Association blocked the appointment. By the time the AHA relented, Oxford's persistent invitations to Dr. Franklin fell on deaf ears. Not surprising, having been rebuffed by his own U.S. colleagues. Still, Dr. Franklin's Cambridge experience reveals something about the inescapable reality of race and politics. Unlike so many scholars before and after him, Dr. Franklin never had the luxury of resting on his laurels, teaching a few classes, and hiding out in university library. Instead, he was an unofficial ambassador, a powerful, an eloquent voice to translate the black freedom movement for European audiences, to explain the violence, the resistance, and the refusal to accept gradualism. Just months before he and his family took off for England, he was putting the finishing touches on his interpretation of the Emancipation Proclamation, a tiny but monumental book that put emancipation in a global frame and reminded readers that presidents did not make history alone, but history made presidents. Abraham Lincoln had to respond to slave revolts, the consequences of war and revolutions, economic pressures, cultural shifts of conscience and politics. But Dr. Franklin also acknowledged and examined Lincoln the man, the decisions he made and the choices that lay before him. He explored the tightrope he had to walk between upholding the Constitution and challenging the law of the land on property rights since the birth of the nation. I sometimes wish Obama had read his book alongside um, Goodwin's team of ri rivals, but more about that later. The point, of course, is that Dr. Franklin was a public intellectual whose quest for equal justice and equality for all informed and defined his work. 
His year at Cambridge and subsequent lectures throughout Europe might be seen as a transatlantic dimension of the black freedom movement, not merely another academic feather in his cap. In other words, he could not remain safely ensconced within the ivy walls of Cambridge University. He had to speak to the BBC. Dr. Franklin understood this awesome responsibility. Over the course of the next 47 years, he continued to produce rigorous scholarship while working publicly and behind the scenes to bring about change. In 1993, he railed against the idea that America was anywhere near a post-racial apotheosis, offering the memorable comment that the concept of a colorblind society is as, is as specious as the concept of perpetual motion is stupendous. On January 20th, 2005, he spent his 90th birthday delivering what he characterized as his counter-inaugural address on the day George Bush was being sworn into office. He gave a brilliant accounting of the history of racial inequality and violence in the United States. It was classic Dr. Franklin, uncut, unplugged, unleashed. He possessed the courage to speak truth to power, yet never feared evidence that might contradict his assumptions. So it should surprise no one that I shall dedicate my lecture in the entire year to the memory of John Hope Franklin. Now, a long prologue, I confess, but a necessary one. Dr. Franklin, like so many of us, was moved to tears by President Barack Obama's election. As a dean of African American history, the media pressed him for a reaction. They got the soundbite they wanted, that he never thought he'd, he'd live to see a black man elected president but they ignored his perspective as an American historian. Franklin never backed down from his pronouncement that the United States unequivocally had not achieved colorblindness, but that did not matter. The media almost universally proclaimed Obama's election to be the final death blow to racism. USA Today asked if we still need a Voting Rights Act, quote, now that a black man has won the presidency. And columnist Jim Wooten of the Atlantic Journal-Constitution argued that Obama's victory proved that, quote, the political system that discriminated and the people who designed it are dead and gone. Some historians uh, also repeat the sentiment. Uh, in Harold Holzer's view, quote, Barack Obama's victory serves to help complete the unfinished work Abraham Lincoln spoke about in his Gettysburg Address that America fulfills its dream of equal opportunity regardless of race. Poetic, but historically questionable. Uh, indeed, Barry Schwartz argues that the Gettysburg Address was originally about preserving the world's only democracy, and then it was later cast as a call for racial equality by the modern civil rights movement. Though I question the idea that the unfinished work is complete. Whatever the case, the proliferation of these kinds of historical claims in the wake of Obama's victory interests me, not because they are wrong or bad, but because they reveal deep ideological shifts and rifts being played out in the way the media, pundits, historians, even Obama and his handlers have sought to interpret the historical significance and precedence for his election and presidency. I want to suggest a couple of things, and by the way, some of the, I want to warn you ahead of time, some of the images I show you um, are kind of humorous, so don't, you don't have to be so dour. Like, the, it, you don't feel bad if something's kind of funny to you, because 
um, you know, though this is a very serious topic, no one can take everything so seriously, you know. Um, so I want to warn you ahead of time in case you see some things that might throw you off. Um, anyway, so I want to suggest a couple of things. First, conservatives and, and many liberals have read Obama's election as marking the end of racism. And this has had a chilling effect on public discussions or acknowledgement of contemporary racism, not to mention America's vexed racial history. Second, and partly as a consequence, Obama has been thoroughly decoupled from the social movements that laid the basis for his election. He's been turned into a kind of savior who descended onto the world stage, transcendent of race and other fetters of identity, a transformational force upon whose shoulders the future of the nation and the free world rests. The great man theory of history has come back with a vengeance as Obama's rise has encouraged endless comparisons with past presidents, notably Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, even Ronald Reagan. And for our purposes, I'm only going to limit my discussions to the most common analog, uh, Lincoln. Um, although my plan was to talk about all these, but then after 300 pages of notes, I said, that's not going to work. So the result has been the evisceration of social movements as a force for change. Okay. Many of my own students now believe that change comes only from intelligent, benign, almost divine leadership, not social movements. And finally, a few caveats. Unlike so many lecturers before me, I'm not summarizing my life's work. On the contrary, I have strayed quite far from my field of study. I just published a book on Thelonious Monk, so this is very far. Um, tonight's topic grew out of my concern for how history was being used to explain the significance of Barack Obama's election in the shape of national politics. Thus, my formulations are quite schematic, and even then, time constraints forced me to scale back um, my original outline. The aim of my lecture is to really to open discussion, not to close it. I'm not a presidential scholar, nor am I trying to become one. And besides, you have in your midst one of the world's leading presidential historians, Nigel Bowles, a foremost authority on the Civil War in Jay Sexton, the renowned Lincoln biographer Richard Carradine. Uh, so, you know, I can't even talk. You know, th these are people who have done so much more work than I have on this. And here I am uh, running around, roaming around the territory. At Oxford, no less. So that, that's, you know, so you know I'm bold. Um, finally, I'm less interested in debates among professional historians than in the way such interpretations of history play out in the general public and their consequences for uh, contemporary social movements in the future of the nation. And, and that, that really is my interest. Obama ran a campaign that claimed to transcend race, but in truth tried to erase it. He had no choice. And not because white Americans are hopelessly racist, but because our entire nation is woefully ignorant when it comes to race and racism. Thanks to a poll-crazed media, the issue of race has been reduced to what ordinary people think about race. And too often, these polls continue to rely on an outdated black-white framework. To our peril, we ignore hard questions about why racial disparities persist and are widening why hate crimes against Latinos have risen sharply, why one in nine black men ages 20 to 34 are behind bars, or how race has shaped immigration policy 
the subprime lending crisis, or even the conduct of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. While scholars study these questions, they have not become part of the general public discussion because most Americans see race as a black problem rather than a national issue, shaping virtually all aspects of public policy. I suspect uh, President Obama knows this, but he also knows that his uh, color is a liability when it comes to addressing racial disparities. It is sadly ironic that the president, perhaps most sensitive to racial inequality, would have to ignore race, lest he be accused of partisanship. Given these dynamics, President Obama believed he had no choice but to transcend race by invoking a politics of colorblindness, building unity not by recognizing that our whole nation has a race problem, but through forgetting and ignoring our past and present. To be fair, he rejects the post-racial label. In the audacity of hope, he acknowledged the enormous gaps between whites and blacks and Latinos in income, housing, life expectancy, infant mortality, and wealth. Uh, and he says, quote, to suggest that our racial attitudes play no part in these disparities, he wrote, is to turn a blind eye to both our history and our experience and to relieve ourselves of the responsibility to make things right. President Obama argues that the best way to remedy racial inequality is by lifting all boats economically. Everyone wins if we could provide universal health care, create additional good-paying green-collar jobs, stop downsizing and outsourcing, and strengthen education. While the president certainly makes a compelling case, the idea that colorblind social and economic policies that ignore institutionalized racism will address persistent racial inequality by lifting all boats is untenable. For example, the president speaks eloquently about creating green-collar jobs and retooling a dying manufacturing sector to jumpstart a clean energy economy. But unless we eliminate persistent employment discrimination, reinvest in urban education, and relocate firms that, have, that fled to the industrial suburbs back to the cities, black and brown workers could be locked out of the new economy. He envisions affordable health care to all, but if we ignore the disappearance and deterioration of urban public hospitals, the black and Latino urban poor may have health insurance, but no decent place to go for emergency care. Or consider how race shaped the subprime crisis. A recent study shows that African Americans and Latinos were disproportionately affected by predatory lending schemes and experienced higher percentage of foreclosures. Of course, given the overwhelming history of racial discrimination by lending institutions in the United States, the use of um, federal housing authority uh, ratings to devalue homes in black or mixed neighborhoods, and the use of redlining and blockbusting and other forms of racial discrimination by real estate agencies, the racial disparities in the subprime crisis should not surprise us. But you would never know, you would never know this from watching the US media. The emphasis has been on white, middle-class suburbs, these sort of iconic ordinary Americans, and those are the houses that are being foreclosed on. You know. Meanwhile, transcending race has rendered the problem of inner city neighborhoods invisible, with the possible exception of New Orleans because of um, Katrina. Just imagine if a centerpiece of federal housing policy, right, was to rebuild and revitalize our inner cities. 
one based not on gentrification and displacement, but on people of all backgrounds living together, expanding our civic culture in communities that care for one another. Or consider what a massive public works infrastructure project could do uh, if a large portion of the investment went to building low-income housing for the homeless, the majority of whom are people of color. In the new post-racial America, such projects are not politically viable. So virtually every major media outlet across the country compared Obama to Abraham Lincoln. Okay. It was inevitable given that Obama's inauguration coincided with the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth. And the new president himself has not only embraced the analogy, but aggressively employed it for his own political theater. When he announced his candidacy, on the steps of the Illinois State Capitol uh, in Springfield in 2007, he compared himself to Lincoln. He was the first president to use the Lincoln Bible for his inauguration. His inaugural theme, A New Birth of Freedom, was inspired by Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Uh, and if you did, still didn't get it, Penguin Books put out a special edition of Obama's inaugural address, packaged with the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln's first and second inaugurals, and Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance. As president-elect, Obama chose to travel on a whistle-stop train from Philadelphia to Washington, following the final leg of the train route uh, taken by Lincoln. And it's interesting, because I think a historian named David Blight, I think it was his idea to do this, because um, historians are always in the mix. You know? And perhaps most famously, Obama told CBS News that he was reading Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, Goodwin's 2005 book, Team of Rivals, which focuses on Lincoln's cabinet. And he also met with Goodwin. Not surprisingly, Lincoln mania and Obama's election became a cottage industry for certain uh, well-placed Lincoln scholars and pundits uh, to draw parallels between these two tall, gangly, big-eared Illinois lawyers turned politician. Goodwin's interpretation, more than any other, set the stage by focusing on Obama's selection of rival Hillary Clinton for Secretary of State, much like Lincoln's choice of William Seward uh, for the same post. Virtually every journalist and pundit embraced Goodwin's thesis, though they were also fascinated by the physical, geographical, and, bi and biographical similarities between the two men. Uh, that Obama and Lincoln were self-made men and Washington outsiders captured the imaginations of journalists like Evan Thomas and Richard Wolff of Newsweek. On the other hand, their fellow liberal Newsweek colleague, Howard Feynman, thought the analogy insulting. To be blunt, wrote Feynman in October of 2008, his trials are a lot less Malcolm X than Obama's autobiography has made it seem, end quote. He goes on to characterize Obama as just another privileged prep school kid who knew how to work the system. His, quote, community organizing work was not very controversial or effective. Uh, he didn't think Obama's anti-war speech was so heroic, given the time and place. And he called his Senate victory against Alan Keyes a cakewalk, which in African-American history, that's actually a kind of problematic term, but I don't think he understood that. Um, in other words, and the list goes on, Obama, unlike Abe, had no real adversity. And so therefore, the idea of a self-made man is, is, um, 
an overstatement. The historians, of course, tended to be more judicious, if, if not more charitable. Again, Harold Holzer, who is co-chairman of the U.S. Lincoln Bicentennial Commission and author of Lincoln, President-Elect, Abraham Lincoln in the Great Succession Winter of 1860-61, has been a pervasive voice on television and print, speaking on Obama's Lincoln-esque composure, commitment to national unity, his decision to remain quiet during the president-elect phase, and the symbolic nature of his election as a fulfillment of Lincoln's vision of racial equality. Um, James McPherson commented on how both presidents possessed cool intellect, were voracious readers, and had to oversee wars without previous military experience. And of course, he plugged his books like everyone else. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, because I, you know, I'm plugging my books all the time. As I mentioned, Thelonious Monk, Life and Times of an American Original. Um, <laughs> so Goodwin was everywhere, you know, Doris Kearns, Kearns go, everywhere on every show, but had surprisingly little to say beyond restating her thesis in Team of Rivals. <laughs> Though she did hammer home the point that the only real difference between Obama and Lincoln is the scrutiny the former faces with the 24-hour news cycle. In other words, today any internal dissension within the administration is bound to become a distraction and shape public opinion. And of course, with Lincoln, that wasn't the case because there was no 24-hour news cycle. But nowadays, you know, I mean, the, even the issue about Obama getting a puppy is news, you know. So I was struck, struck by the emphasis both historians and journalists placed on public opinion and opinion polls. In Doris Kearns Goodwin's piece in the UK Guardian earlier this year, she only mentions the Emancipation Proclamation as an example of Lincoln's uncanny ability to gauge public opinion, which is not a new point, but that was the only point she made about it. Um, despite the fact that her over 900-page tome uh, devotes a little over a dozen pages to the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, likewise, um, Matthew Dalek, who wrote a substantial piece in the U.S. News and World Report, compares Lincoln's anti-slavery policies with Obama's massive reform agenda, health care, energy, independence, economic recovery, only to make the point that these two presidents were ahead of public opinion and their political genius rests on their ability to gauge that opinion and forge ahead at the proper pace. And for me, it's a very limited argument because it not only ignores social movements and contending forces that are pushing for or against such changes, but it renders the president as the primary historical agent who must persuade the public first, then push through his agenda. There's no dialectic, there's no transformation, no development, either in the president or his constituency, not to mention all other branches of government, capital, labor, et cetera, et cetera. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not dismissing the, the role of public opinion. Often it matters in terms of, of a regime's ability to mobilize support for war, though it did not stop the Bush-Cheney regime, um, if you know about the United States, because uh, public opinion was actually on the other side. Um, and the pollster, Stanley Greenberg, also weighed in on the Lincoln-Roosevelt-Obama comparison by arguing that the first two men gauged popular opinion 
constantly and acted accordingly. But he also argued that the point is not to wait for the populace to come around, but to use the power of oratory, the bully pulpit, the media, to change minds, to persuade the people to support the president's position. And, and that was the focus. Missing from Greenberg's, Dalek's, Goodwin's formulations are social movements. Movements that propel the president's agenda and movements that push back. Op op opinion polls alone don't reveal the dynamic relationship between ideas, vision, aspirations, and movements. One of the few exceptions among the off-quoted talking heads was Eric Foner, a uh, Columbia University professor and author of many books on Reconstruction, 19th century labor and politics, and US history, broadly speaking. As he cautioned National Public Radio's Michelle Kellerman, let's see, there we go. If Obama is going to learn one thing from Lincoln, I think it ought to be how to respond to the pressure and the needs of broad social movements, not just the inside the beltway politics. He goes on to say, we remember Lincoln because of how he changed and grew during the Civil War, how he moved towards emancipation of the slaves, and then toward the very end of his life, really began thinking seriously about the place of African Americans as freed people in a post-slavery society. Foner was one um, of the few experts to put the question of race, slavery, and emancipation front and center. Okay? Now, perhaps this was a function of National Public Radio, which is not CNN, you know, although it's pretty popular now, believe it or not, among my friends. Um, <laughs> I suspect other historians probably brought it up, but mainstream producers, writers, did not feel it played well to the public or that it, you know, it was sort of beside the point in our new colorblind society. Whatever the reasons, I found the absence of a sustained discussion of race and slavery surprising and, and most unfortunate, and not simply because our new president is black. As many other scholars have argued, Lincoln's transformational presidency pivoted on the question of slavery. Okay? Though always principled in his opposition to slavery, his path to emancipation was shaped immeasurably by the inexorable movement of African Americans toward freedom. Even the casual reader comparing his first and second inaugural addresses can't help but notice a shift from upholding the fugitive slave law in slavery were legal, uh, I'm sorry, from upholding the fugitive slave law in slavery were legal to a recognition four years later that the slaves were historical actors whom he called, quote, a peculiar and powerful interest, and hence the cause of the war. This was hardly Lincoln's first salvo against the evils of slavery, but it emphatically recognized black humanity and the price the nation had to pay to secure liberty for all. We cannot know this trajectory by limiting our sights to the Oval Office, Lincoln's team of rivals, or the halls of Congress. Social movements matter. For the most uh, important one of the era, emancipation, uh, through the draft riots, abolitionism, labor struggles on both sides of the Atlantic, all of this matters in terms of shaping presidential policy. 
Certainly, scholars continue to discuss, debate, and mull over these issues. Uh, in fact, buried in the avalanche of New Lincoln studies have been some useful interventions focused specifically on questions of race uh, and, and slavery. And one would think that with the election of the first black president, these texts would have risen to the top like cream. George Fredrickson's brief um, book uh, called Big Enough to be Inconsistent, Abraham Lincoln Confronts Slavery and Race, takes his title from W.E.B. Du Bois' Controversial Reflections on Lincoln in Crisis Magazine, published in 1922. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., edited Lincoln on Race and Slavery, an excellent collection of primary documents with a strong introduction for general readers. But even Gates' famous name, especially after he was arrested, wasn't enough for wide circulation or trade press. Both books were essentially ignored in the national media, and not because they sully Lincoln's grand reputation. On the contrary, they don't. They challenge accusations of racism, as well as the kind of hagiographies, uh, hagiographers who proclaim uh, Lincoln the great emancipator, emphasizing, as Du Bois had, Lincoln's inconsistencies and contradictions. But I return to Du Bois, the later Du Bois, who 74 years ago gave us his magisterial book, Black Reconstruction. And that book provided a slightly different take on Lincoln than his 1922 musings, one that restores the dynamics of social movements to the realm of presidential policy. And in so doing, I want to suggest that we might locate Obama's political legacy not necessarily in the wit and wisdom of Abe Lincoln, but in the political dynamics of the movement for freedom. Okay. When Du Bois revisited Lincoln and the question of emancipation, consistency was no longer the point. It was about agency. He writes, meantime, with perplexed and laggard steps, the United States government followed the footsteps of the black slave. It made no difference how much Abraham Lincoln might protest that this was not a war against slavery. The slave, despite every effort, was becoming the center of the war. Lincoln, with his uncanny insight, began to see it. Here, Du Bois documents Lincoln's initial reluctance, his instructions to return fugitive slaves to the Confederate lines to avoid freeing black folk held by the rebels. But it was these tattered, weary, yet hopeful Africans whose acts of self-emancipation self compelled Congress to pass the first Confiscation Act in August 1861, effectively freeing slaves used in war by the enemy. As Du Bois and John Hope Franklin and many others have been arguing for decades, whereas Lincoln walked the thin line between his moral opposition to slavery, the issue of political expediency, and his defense of the Constitution, it was kidnapped Africans who forced the issue, with additional wind provided by the Charles Sumners, the Thaddeus Stevens, the Horace Greeley's, and others, Lincoln's left flank, the advocates of abolition democracy. Enslaved Africans not only weakened the Confederacy by disrupting production, running off the Union lines, engaging in what Du Bois called a general strike. But as free people, black folk paved the way for a more democratic nation. Okay? Black soldiers saw themselves as liberators and believed they earned their right to the land 
and to participate as citizens. This sense of politics, collective identity, and civic vision was forged in slavery. Freed families wanted to build a society substantially different from that of their former masters and northern capitalists. They wanted a state that could provide economic support for those in need, irrespective of color, that would protect its citizens from violence and exploitation and grant them the right to armed self-defense, that would provide public education and public services, that worked to actively achieve and defend equality, and that would seize land from the former rebels whom they believed were guilty of treason and distribute it to freed people as reparations for unpaid wages. President Obama, I would argue, may claim the mantle of Abe Lincoln, but he is also a political descendant of that first generation of black lawmakers elected during Reconstruction. When ex-slaves won the right to vote, held offices in the state houses and assemblies in Congress, and helped draft the most democratic state constitutions in the history of the country, providing free universal public education, funds for roads and infrastructure, services for poor and physically disabled, ending imprisonment for debt, and abolishing public whipping. These men, many of whom bore the marks of the slaver's lash, preferred expanding democracy to punishing whites, and some even supported women's suffrage. A quarter century later, of course, African Americans were effectively disenfranchised through force and intimidation. In all the Lincoln-Obama comparisons, in all the efforts to assess the historical significance of America's journey to the first black president, where was this story on CNN or MSNBC? The truth is, the United States today, the civil, uh, in the United States today, the Civil War is considered American history. The history of slavery and emancipation is relegated to black history. And in our new era of colorblindness, to even bring up slavery, we're told, will only bring us down. I can't tell you how many times I've been accused of playing the race card on the radio, in little comments to the web articles, et cetera, for insisting that slavery, emancipation, Jim Crow, and civil rights are not minority histories of special pleading or victim studies, but central to our, fundamental to our understanding of, Amer of the American experience. But again, Du Bois said it much better than I when he observed again in 1935 that Emancipation came not simply to black folk in 1863. To white Americans came slowly a new vision and a new uplift, a sudden freeing of hateful mental shadows. At last, democracy was to be justified of its own children. The nation was to be purged of a continual sin, not indeed of its own doing, not indeed all of its own doing, due partly to its inheritance and yet a sin, a negation that gave the world the right to sneer at the pretensions of this republic. At last, there could really be a free commonwealth of free men. Obama's original campaign vision of united the nation, uniting the nation around uh, creating a caring, compassionate culture from the bottom up has its roots in a distinctive political heritage. And the black freedom movement is but one branch. 
Obama's support for women's rights, gay rights, a green economy, even prison reform, however limited, is a product of not just the, his Enlightenment ideas, uh, but struggles for social justice, feminism, uh, GLBTQ movements, uh, environmental and ecological justice movements, and groups like prison moratorium and critical resistance. While he does not embrace all of the ideas and principles, principles embodied in these movements, many elements of his platform can be traced to their activism. President Obama descends from a long line of community organizers, from Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, and Bob Moses, to Grace Lee Boggs, Johnny Tillman, and Dolores Huerta. Some of these names are familiar, some are not, which is exactly the point. Unlike any other US president, Obama was formed by a political tradition that believes in the power of ordinary people to make decisions, to participate fully in the democratic process, and to formulate policies and agendas that grow immediately out of their daily struggles. He presumably learned something from the residents he had organized in Chicago's Altgeld Gardens housing project in the mid-1980s, those beautiful older black women who taught our 44th president about the capacity of poor people to make demands and fight back. And he had to have known then that the policies leading to disproportionately high unemployment rates, deteriorating housing stock, crumbling urban hospitals, and rising crime rates were anything but colorblind. In the end, race matters, but so does our culture of self-interest and our national refusal to come to terms with our racial past. The Obama strategy has been to win over the majority of Americans by appealing to their self-interest and by ignoring historical and contemporary oppression. As he explained, quote, when you start focusing so much on the plight of the historically oppressed, you lose sight of what we have in common. Of course, as, a pragmatic, uh, as pragmatic as the statement might appear, it is also incredibly short-sighted. When you focus on the plight of the historically oppressed, we see even better what we have in common. Our histories are bound up together, not just as a nation, but as a world. As James Baldwin once warned white Americans, if you don't know my name, you don't know your own. Besides the obvious fact that the privileges enjoyed by the powerful are made possible by the exploitation of the historically oppressed, there is no reason why the whole of the American people should not care about the plight of all oppressed people. In lieu of a politics of self-interest, imagine a politics of collective interest, a commitment to an international community working to end all forms of oppression and exploitation, to make restitution, to see our own complicity and do something about it, to build a caring culture, one rooted in empathy and critical analysis. Racial justice and thoughtful race and gender conscious policies that try to remedy persistent discrimination can benefit all Americans by raising wages, improving work and living conditions, maintaining economic stability, expanding the body politic, and building a society based on a beloved community rather than hatred, fear, and containment. This was the essence of Martin Luther King's dream, not a colorblind society that ignores discrimination or wishes it away by refusing to acknowledge it, but one in which color is not a badge of inferiority or criminality, 
where color does not determine the value of one's home or who is more likely to see jail time versus probation or who is the likely target to be purged from voting rolls. This, I would venture to say, is the vision that shapes some of the key movements that made Obama's election possible. Of course, anyone who pays attention to American politics knows that many of the social justice movements that put him in office have felt betrayed by his actions, often in pursuit of an illusory bipartisanship. The Nobel Peace Prize winner is preparing to send more troops to Afghanistan, is reluctant to reverse Bush policies of extraordinary rendition, denying terror suspects trial, or denying terror suspects trial, uh, backed a, a watered-down health care reform bill, and the list goes on. Of course, he also faces the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, and intractable House and Senate Republicans, and he's but 10 months into his first term. My point, of course, is that where President Obama moves will depend on how he's pushed. We're Lincoln, I mean, we're Lincoln able to preserve the Union and contain slavery without war, he would have done so. Had the enslaved worked loyally for the Confederacy, defending their masters rather than running toward uh, Union lines, there may not have been a Confiscation Act, an Emancipation Proclamation, a Northern Victory. What would Lincoln have done without abolitionists, white and black? And so, as Cornel West said of the new president, I hope he is a progressive Lincoln. I aspire to be the Frederick Douglass to put pressure on him. Thank you.